You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. though ever since uh, the book of Acts, that's what the church has been asking since the Lord's ascension. What next? What next? And uh, uh, today, I, tonight, I felt to go into a study on 1 Corinthians, and I don't know how far we'll make it into this because it is a rather lengthy letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, but um, I feel as though uh, it is still applicable, still applicable to the church today, the lessons that we can learn from it. And uh, just give you a little bit of recap. And before we start into that, why don't we pray one more time, ask God to be with us throughout the rest of this Bible study. God, we are so thankful to be here once again, glorifying your holy name. You are so good. God, you have met us here with your presence, Lord, as soon as we begin to worship. We felt you, Lord, and we ask right now that you would allow your hand to rest upon your servant here tonight, that you would help me to speak to this wonderful group of individuals, God, known as the family of God. We are so thankful, Lord, for the opportunity that we have here tonight to glean from your word. God, I pray that it would dig its roots deep down into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, just before we go right into the lesson, I just wanted to give you a little bit of overview uh, about 1 Corinthians, its timeline, when it was written, who it was to. And so if we go to the next slide here, Paul calls the Corinthians to be a holy church in a challenging culture. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound exactly where we're at right now? God is still calling his church. He is still calling us to be a holy church in this challenging culture, a culture that would challenge every single thing that we do. And so, uh, so that's the theme of this entire book. And then at, if we go further here, it tells us that it was written by Paul to the church in Corinth, uh, AD 54 to 56. And from this next chart that we see here, we'll see where Corinth is. Uh, it was located not too far from Athens. And uh, you see it located right down there. Now, the timeline for this being written, we see that Paul goes on his first missionary journey, uh, which is 46 to 47 AD. Paul, he establishes the Corinthian church at 51. And so when we arrive at this letter, this first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's writing from Ephesus, and uh, he's writing it in AD 54 to 55. So the church is somewhere around four to five years old. It's not a very old church. And so they're still going through some growing pains. They're still going through some things trying to find exactly where they should be. And, uh, and then, as we see from this continued timeline, Paul, he writes the second letter to the Corinthians from Macedonia in 55 to 57. And then Paul is arrested in Jerusalem in 57. And uh, Paul travels to Rome in 8060. And so we see from this timeline that we've gathered here that a lot of events have taken place just within a few years of each other. And he is, after he's established this church, after he puts it in place, of course, he wants to stay connected to it, and he wants to make sure that, um, that things are okay. And 
report gets back to him that things are not okay. Things are, in fact, not okay at all. And so he writes this church, the, he writes this letter, and um, it's, uh, it, it's kind of incredible watching the ministry of Paul through, throughout uh, his lifespan, all throughout his lifespan as a Christian. He's become known to us as a church planter. He goes in, starts a work, and uh, places an individual that's capable of handling the responsibilities of a local congregation to somebody. And he goes on to plant another work, and so continued. But he remains as the, the founder of the work. And so um, he, he finds it his responsibility to ensure that things are, are transpiring as they should. And uh, we'll see from this outline here, and we'll probably only get maybe the first chapter or two in uh, tonight, but the introduction uh, takes place in the first nine verses. Then Paul responds to reports of the Corinthians' conduct from uh, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. And then Paul responds to the Corinthians' letter in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 58. And then he concludes matters. He wraps things up. And uh, if you'll notice, it takes him an entire chapter to do that. He is a regular preacher. <laughs> um, and uh, if I was to highlight a verse out of 1 Corinthians to get at what Paul was trying to get at with this letter, I would probably uh, go right straight to chapter 6, verse 9. And it says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this. He says, and such were some of you. This is the makeup of the church at Corinth. These people had come out of this sordid background, Many of them perhaps still were struggling with much of the aftermath in their lives of these worldly things. And Paul is reminding them, and such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In the city of Corinth, it was a city of multiculturalism, of wealth and beauty with potential for great things, but it was also a city that was centered around worship of immorality. And so we dig right into the letter here tonight. We see in verse 1, Paul, he introduces himself, as is custom to his letters. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sothenes. If you read Acts chapter 18 about Paul's time in Corinth, you will find that Paul, he, he leads Crispus, the synagogue ruler, to faith in Jesus. Then Sothenes, the new synagogue ruler, leads a mob to arrest Paul. They then turn on Sothenes and beat him to a pulp. And the next thing we read about Sothenes is that he is a believer in Christ. How strange and amazing the Lord works. He says to the church in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, he writes this letter from Ephesus to the church he planted in Corinth about four to five years earlier. 
It's a reply to a letter that he received from the church with questions about faith and life. Yes, we know that we're called to be the church, but how do we live as the church in this present world? We don't know what the questions were in this letter that Paul received. Maybe it would be nice to know that. Obviously, there were troubles in this church. And in this slightly cryptic way, Paul, he tells us what those troubles were in the first nine verses. Paul, he slips in this phrase, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. He reminds them of their purpose. He reminds them of what they were to be as the church of God, called to be holy. And when Paul, he wrote to the Galatians, he addressed a people that were very legalistic. The Corinthians were on the other side of the spectrum. They were so much into grace and knew that they were forgiven that they abused grace and became permissive. Because we have the grace of God, because we're under such grace, we can live how we please. And Paul, he reminds the Corinthians that we are called to be holy. He uses the word sanctified, which means set apart. Set apart, but it's more than just that. Consider another big word, justification. This describes the change that God makes in us when we believe in Christ. Some call it being born again. It is the inward change of our natures from a selfish way of living to a selfless, Christ-like way of living. It's a new attitude. And this is what the Corinthians understood. They understood this part. They understood justification. They had that down pat. And what they did not understand was sanctification. This is the visible result of being saved so that people can see that we are different, so that people can see that we don't belong to this world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And as the days go by, we're more and more thankful for that. (laughs) Thank the Lord that this is not our home. We're just passing through. Our behavior changes, or it ought to change, when we believe in Christ. And so some people are content, though, to believe in Jesus and don't know that they need to follow him, too. To follow is to imitate, to be like. Corinthian behavior was what was in question. And as we study this letter over the next little bit of time that we have here together tonight, we will see that they have problems with each other, divisive problems, immorality problems, marriage problems, and so much more. And they were saved, but they didn't know how to act saved. We are called by God to be his holy people, not holier than thou, not better than thou, (laughs) but to be different in how we approach life and practice, what we do and how we do it every hour of every day, not just at church on Sundays or Bible studies on Wednesdays. It is God's church. As Paul says, the church of God in Corinth, and so it should act like God's church. And so he says, in the next slide here, he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, haven't we? We've been enriched in every way. In all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly Wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And despite the rebukes that will be coming their way, 
Paul is able to say that he is thankful for this church. Any church, our church included, is filled with imperfect people. Everybody give me a big gasp. (gasps) Can't believe that. Can't believe that there would be imperfect people in a church. How do we even let them through the door? We need to strengthen our security system and make sure that only the perfect get in. Those that have it all together, those that, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's and everything else that they need. No. God's church is filled with imperfect people. And so there will be sin. There will be division. There will be problems. There will be differences of opinion. But Paul would still be thankful for us. Why? Whatever problems that we have, we are still in Christ. No matter what we face, no matter what we go through as individuals or as a church, thankful for you because we're in Christ. No, we, we haven't got it all together. We haven't, uh, we, we, we haven't uh, reached the end here and, you know, put everything together. God's still working on us. That is how Paul, he sees Corinth before looking at the mess. He looks at them the way that Christ looks at them. They belong to Jesus. And this is something that we can be thankful for too. We are in Christ. What is true of Corinth is true for us. Paul in this huge chunk of Scripture is thankful that they have every spiritual gift. This church has every gift. Can you imagine what a church service would be like in Corinth? There are many different gifts mentioned in the New Testament, and every one of them was expressed in Corinth. They had miracles. They had healings. They had teachings. They had tongues. They had knowledge. They had leadership. You wouldn't want to miss church because something amazing was bound to happen every service. The problem is that Corinth had every gift and lifted one gift higher than the other. One was better than the other. And that's one of the problems Paul foreshadows here. The gift of tongues was held up as the highest spiritual experience, much to their error. We can possess every gift and still miss what God wants to do in our life. And yet Paul is thankful that the spiritual gifts are being used because it confirmed in his mind that what he had preached to them a number of years before had taken root. They could not claim a single gift of the Spirit if the message of Jesus was not believed. They did believe in him. That was not the problem. And despite their great knowledge of the Bible and their amazing ability to share their teaching, their theological ability, and their eschatological awareness, they still had this problem. With all of their knowledge of Jesus, they failed to grasp that the grace of God ought to change how you live your life. Consider this verse. He says in verse 9, God is faithful. How many know that? God is faithful. God is faithful. Who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Take notice of how many times Christ is mentioned in these first nine verses. Nine times. Paul, he shouts from the page that Christ is the everything of the church. He's the central focus. He later writes that no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul, he could not be an apostle unless Christ called him. We could not be sanctified unless Christ 
We cannot know the grace of God except for Jesus. We cannot be gifted if not for Jesus. We would have no hope of the second coming if not for Jesus. We have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord, but what does that mean? Fellowship has come to mean grabbing a cup of coffee and a brownie after service. Maybe not a brownie, maybe a timbit. Let's go down and have fellowship, we say after the amen. We think fellowship means talking about the new truck you bought. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy that. Or the fishing trip that you were just on. Fellowship has come to mean talking about your kids with other mothers who are just as frazzled as you are. But the Bible says that true fellowship has the power to revolutionize lives. Masks come off. Conversations get deep. Hearts get vulnerable. Lives are shared. Accountability is invited and tenderness flows. People really do become like brothers and sisters. They shoulder each other's burdens. But we have come to understand that church is not a place to share your problems. Don't bring that in here. When your life is unraveling, we stay silent instead of standing up right where you are and say, we need prayer. Our marriage is in trouble. Our kids are in trouble. Our finances are in trouble. Our health is in trouble. Christians shouldn't have problems. So we hide them. But the reality is that just because we know the Lord and serve the Lord doesn't mean that life doesn't affect us. We are not untouchable. Real fellowship is this, sharing Christ. We are called to share Christ with each other. Christ lives among us. He is among us, and we have individual responsibilities to nurture a relationship with Him. We need to live our lives as though we are partners with Him in everything that we do. When we believe that He is here, it changes how we live and worship. And Paul, he writes this letter to the Corinthians to call these people back to true fellowship with Christ. Don't forget what it's about. They were suffering division because Jesus was not Lord of their church. They were immoral because they forgot that their bodies belonged to Christ and should not be joined to the world. They were suing each other because they forgot that they were family in Christ. They forgot that they were members of one body. And this letter was written to call us back as well, to have our consciences pricked to the reality of Christ's presence. If we are wounded and hurting, if we are divided and at odds with each other, Paul's answer is to call us back to an awareness of true fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the portrait of the Corinthian church, and it it may not be pretty. They are called to holiness because their behavior is not becoming of people who claim Jesus as Lord. They are equipped with every gift they need by a gracious God who knows their needs, but they have forgotten that fellowship is not found in a coffee cup, as delicious as it may be, but in relationship with Jesus and his people. They had the ability to do all kinds of mighty things in the Spirit, but not much was happening in the city. And instead of making an impact on Corinth, Corinth was making an impact on the church. Culture does not dictate who we are as a church. Jesus does. doesn't matter what happens in the world. Let the world go by. What matters is Christ. And yet the power of God is stifled if we allow ungodly influences to infiltrate our church. Let's not forget who is Lord of the church and of our lives. Unity is a constant concern. 
for the church in any time and at any place. And Paul, he wrote to several churches passionately pleading with them to work on their unity and to avoid those things that divide. He implored the church at Philippi to be of one mind. He encouraged the church at Ephesus to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And now we read that the church at Corinth was facing division over certain issues as well. This is Paul's challenge to the church, the challenge to be one. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. I may have not uh, given you that one. I jumped ahead. Among all the problems the church at Corinth was facing, division is the first that Paul addresses. All of the other problems flow out of a congregation that is divided. They were divided over spiritual gifts, over worship, over their ethics. But these were the results of a much deeper problem, the root of all the rest. On the strength of the name of Christ, for there is no other name that commands such attention, Paul makes this appeal. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. But being united in mind and thought is not about everybody thinking alike. Can you imagine if you all thought like me? That's a terrifying thought. It'd give you nightmares. We all have our own minds and have different thought processes. What Paul said to the Philippians helps us here to understand. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was in also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the mind of Christ, which is a willingness to give up rights and personal privileges and to take a lower place, the place of a servant. This is the mind that Paul speaks of to the Corinthians. When everybody decides to put the things of Christ first and are willing to suffer loss for Christ's sake, that is what brings harmony to a church. That's what does it. It gets dry up here. <clears throat> the unifying of mind and thought is a, is a mind that does not consider itself the most important thing. Paul got word from friends that there were troubles at Corinth. A church without troubles can expect that peace to be broken at some point. It's only a matter of time. And so we read in verses 11 and 12, my brothers and sis sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. And so he identifies at least four groups of individuals from this. Various parties had emerged among the Christians at Corinth. And uh, I think that it's important for us to understand these different parties because I think that they still pop up in today's church. Clement of Rome, writing 40 years after Paul, he mentions the same parties and divisions. That which divides us does not go away that easily. And uh, so I, I want us to draw our attention right now to these four different attitudes that divide us. Uh, firstly, there is the I follow Paul group, the looking back party, I'll call it. Paul planted the church in Corinth, and so some saw him as a spiritual father. They were nostalgic, and they remembered the revival that brought them to faith. Some wanted to relive those days and keep that feeling alive. The group 
emphasize Christian freedom and the end of the law. But that does not fit since there is a hint of personality problems. That is key considering that this division and perhaps all division in the church is more about who we don't like than about doctrine. Personality clashes indicate more of a failure or refusal to let God's love change us in our attitudes towards others. When people don't agree with each other and sit down to discuss matters, they will find things to to disagree on. If I have a relationship with someone, I am less likely to pick a fact. A fight, that's a fact. And what we do with our kids whenever they start quarreling, we get them to pray for each other. How can you pray for each other and be angry and disagreeable and frustrated? They don't like it. <laughs> that's too bad. We're the parents. We know what's best for them. And so they start mumbling. We're like, no, louder. Lord, forgive me for what I said to Sadie. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know so that, that's something that we teach our children is that uh, if you have a disagreement with somebody pray for them pray for them um, those that want to relive the old days will find progress to be a threat it's hard to live leave the past behind when the present doesn't fit our mold or our model, the way that we, we started off, the way that we've always done things. And then there is the I follow Apollos group. And Apollos, he's this young and intellectual. Uh, Apollos came, he, he came from Alexandria in Egypt, which was like saying that he studied at Oxford or Yale. He was a great speaker. He had wonderful intellect and was able to passionately and accurately preach about Jesus. And it blew people away. And Paul was considered a little boring to listen to. Remember Eutychus that fell asleep and fell out of a window. And uh, nobody's close to a window tonight, are they? <laughs> and so maybe he didn't measure up to the fiery young Apollos. Some say that Apollos was unwittingly introduced as an intellectual elite into Corinth. Young Christians were drawn to him, and it's easy for them, sometimes for all of us, to take our teaching only from a chosen guru. The problem with this party was their drive for change without consideration for the feelings of others and for due process. And then thirdly, we have the I follow Cephas or Peter party. And I call this the traditionalist party. The I follow Cephas party or group looked back as well, but their emphasis was more on keeping traditions. These are the people who have been in the church the longest, have given the most money, and have cherished the most traditions of the past. They don't like change, especially if it means giving up a style or way of doing things in the church, particularly if those young intellectuals like Apollos are behind it. If Peter had visited Corinth, he would have left some with the impression that there are certain things Christians do and don't do. There's nothing wrong with having traditions, but oftentimes... The meaning of the traditions are lost, and we are only left with the traditions. No one knows why we do this, but don't you dare change it. I was, uh, I, I may have told you this before, but it, um, and I won't name names. I'll keep it as generic as possible, but last year I was listening on the radio on my way home, CBC Radio, and they were interviewing this individual that um, had... Uh, for lack of a better term, worshipped a certain saint. 
and they had a statue created and put on the dash of their car, and they would, uh, for 40 years, he said, he prayed to the statue to give them safety on the road. And it just came out uh, through current records uh, last year that this individual that he had been praying to for 40-some years was not real. He never existed. Somewhere along the way, somebody had created this individual within the church and began praying to him. And they asked him, they said, now that you know this information, that this individual is not real, are you going to stop praying to him? And they said, he said, uh, this was his words. He said, well, I've been doing it for 40 years. Why stop now? Let's just, let, let that just sink in a little bit. We have a real God. We have a real God that we can turn to with our real problems. And he really listens to us. He really cares about us. And it, it can be frustrating, to say the least, to look at individuals that, that you think should know better, maybe, and get things right. And yet, all that tells me is that the truth still needs to be preached. The truth still needs to be preached. The last group that we have here is the I Follow Christ group. And uh, it may have been the most difficult one to deal with. With the excessive attention to these personalities, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, this group would have formed as a counter to any human leadership. I don't follow any human leadership. I only follow God. They reject this hero worship and claim to only follow Christ. So why? So would we accept that we become a very anti-authority type of group that rejects any instruction? Uh, they, they would say things like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I told that to my aunt once. It was not good when I was young. I told her that she wasn't my mother. She couldn't tell me what to do. I learned it very quickly that it didn't have to be my mother in order to tell me what to do. These, uh, these people eventually would consider the others to unspiritual and form their own church. They are a scary party, too, because they are likely to use the phrase, the Lord told me. And how do you argue with that? But you'll notice in each group that divides, there is that annoying little letter, I. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. There is the divisiveness that fractures the church. The challenge to be one. To be an individual with the power to choose my own way. Stand in opposition of the challenge to be one. To be united with others in the name of Christ. I must give way and submit to the needs of the body. But how do we do that? Only in Christ. In response to this, all of these clicks, Paul asks three questions which call our focus back in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? To allow such divisive parties to exist is like chopping Christ up into bits and to parcel him out as though his person and work came in different packages. You can't do that. If you have Christ, you have all of him. And so some churches emphasize the grace of God, others the holiness of God. And still others are socially active helping the poor, but Jesus cannot be divided. We need every single part, the complete package. 
involves all of these aspects of Christ. We say we want more of Him, but that's not the real need. The truth is that we have all of Jesus existing as we need Him. What we need is to allow Christ to have more of us. Christ is whole. Christ is the one who's whole. We are the ones who are in need of that wholeness. And so some groups follow the teaching of a particular preacher and shun all the rest. Oh, I only listen to this preacher. I won't come to church if so-and-so's preaching. (laughs) I don't like him. No one, not even Paul, the apostle, had the complete view of Christ. The purpose of the church that God has designed is that even with our own differences and diversities, when we come together as one, we are more whole than we are apart. Paul asks this. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Was I crucified for you? With this question, he challenges us to drop the personality cults or private crusades and to focus on Christ. Really, this is the heart of the matter since what brings us together is this, and this is what it all boils down to. What brings us all together is the cross. We tend to overemphasize the significance of a human leader or our own personal causes and forget that Christ is why we are here. Christ is the reason that the church exists. It's for Him. You didn't show up for me tonight. You didn't show up to listen to the music being played, go through our song set, listen to some preaching and go home so that you can feel good about yourself. Say that you attended church this week. No. That's not what this is about. It's all about Him. We do it for Christ. We serve the Lord. We come faithfully. We show up. And so we could ask the question this way, was blank crucified for you? Fill in the blank. Was our worship style crucified for you? Was Sunday school crucified for you? Was the building program crucified for you? Was tradition crucified for you? Was Brother Robertson crucified for you? And the answer, of course, to all of those is no. Only Christ was crucified for you. And salvation is dependent on none of these things or persons, but only on Christ. And only Jesus can unite men and women, and he does so through the cross. There is no class distinction at the cross. The intellectuals have no advantage. The charter members have no prestige. The traditionalists are no further ahead because before the cross, all are, all are on equal ground. We can never move on from the cross of Christ This is the place where we are all made one in Him. And lastly, he asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why, after the cross, is this important to think about? To be baptized in someone's name was to have one's one's life signed over to that person. When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His name, and you became His possession. You were baptized into Christ. And that means that He is Lord of your life. It also means that everything else takes second place to being Christian. Yes, I'm Mark Robertson. Yes, I am Jolene's husband. Yes, I am Levi and Sadie's dad. But first and foremost, I am Christ. Why do these things divide churches? In each instance, it is because eyes have been taken off the cross. 
Christ is our wholeness. He is our salvation. He is our Lord. If we ever take our eyes off of him and concentrate on other things, programs, political ambitions, we will have division. And so the question is this, where do you place the I in the church? We get it all wrong sometimes. We come to church and are disappointed when the songs that are being played or sung are not the genre that we like. I like the old songs. Well, I like the new songs. Well, it's too cold in here. It's too hot in here. The pews are hard. The pews are too soft. Church isn't about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not what we like. It's about what he likes. It's what pleases him. And so as long as we're glorifying God through our worship and praise, as long as we're preaching the truth about Jesus Christ, as long as his word is going forth and being planted into people's hearts and lives and changes are happening, transformations are taking place, and his name is getting spread throughout the earth, that's all that matters. That's what the church is about. The church was created by God and for God. And if Christ is your Lord, then there is no other name which can command such power and unity among us. Just as I come to a close here, I will attempt to come to a close quickly, maybe. I've got eight minutes left, so I'll try my best. Wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. It is not enough to know something. You have to know what to do with that knowledge. We have to be able to put that knowledge into action properly. And so some wisdom seems like nonsense to us, painfully obvious, but somehow elusive, and things that we take for granted and forget. Children will remind us of, and we say, oh, of course, I forgot that, yeah. We adults think that we are so wise, but then out of the mouth of babes comes a wisdom that sounds foolish but isn't. How wise humankind is today with our many degrees and the fountain of knowledge spewing from our computers. Humankind's potential to solve any problem seems limitless. Pretend that you consider the Bible to be a book of fables and answer this. How would you save the world? How would you save the world? Using our worldly wisdom or putting our collective brains together, I believe that some of these issues would make the top five on what we would consider to be what we would be needed to save their world. Number one, clean up the environment and pollution now. Number two, feed the hungry and world poverty. Three, world peace and armed conflicts throughout the world. Number four, develop the third world and promote economic growth. And maybe number five, cure diseases and other potential pandemics threatening our world today. Of course, these are very real and serious issues plaguing the existence and survival of humankind. But let me ask you, in light of all of these problems, how would God save the world? He would send His Son. He would come Himself in the form of flesh, die on a cross. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Sounds like nonsense. That's what the Christians in Corinth were beginning to think too. They had the privilege to hear the gospel message and believed it. But somewhere along the way, they started thinking about this cross thing, and it seemed ridiculous. Forgiveness is great, but the cross? How does that save the world? Corinthians were Greeks, very intellectual people, and fond of philosophy or thinking through things. They were much like us. 
very intelligent beings. And the more we think about the cross ourselves, my old youth pastor, he, he used to say, stinking thinking. That's what gets you in trouble, stinking thinking. And the more we think about the cross ourselves, I think we could very easily come to the same conclusion. The cross as a means of rescue is puzzling. This was no surprise to Paul who wrote to them saying this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to the church, who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's confounding. It makes no sense at all. And they were tempted, these Corinthians, to take the cross out of their message. They were tempted to follow the guys with the best Christian-sounding ideas minus the cross. There were many good philosophers or thinkers to chase after, but they were divided on who they should follow. And Paul, he calls them back to the cross, God's only answer to the world's problem. And despite all the great thinkers the world has ever known, Socrates, Aristotle, all the rest, not one can know God or save the world through human wisdom. So where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars, the world's br brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. And since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. According to Paul, there were two kinds of seekers of wisdom in the world. There are some, like the Jews, who were looking for signs, some visible proof of authenticity. If Jesus is the Savior, the one we expected all these centuries, then prove it. But even after Jesus fed the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish, the crowd turned and asked for a sign. Give us a sign. They were obsessed with signs. Show me, they said. So Jesus showed them the cross. There are some who seek knowledge and wisdom. They are like the Greeks who want everything lined up neatly and logically and without any anomalies. They want wisdom, which is next to godliness in their minds. And again, God showed them the cross. And to the seekers of signs and wisdom, Paul presents the ultimate divine contradiction. We preach Christ crucified. Instead of signs and wisdom, they get weakness and folly. Christ to the Jew meant splendor, power, and majesty. He would be the one that would come and free them from Roman slavery, from Roman bondage and impression upon their world. God cannot be killed on a Roman cross. And how was he supposed to save them? And the church is tempted to play down the meaning of the cross too because it is too scandalous for our generation, too gruesome, too gory, too bloody, too illogical. And when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say that it's all nonsense. But with what would you save the world? If we could all stand, we all come to a close. Let's return to one or two of our five issues that plague our world. If the cross is powerless to solve these issues, what would you do to save the world? If we could all cure the diseases in the world, would we have a better life? If bird flu was a thing of the past, would our world be saved? Can humankind actually obtain immorality? I, I was looking in a magazine, I was reading, and that I was forced to do a double take on an ad that it came across. 
As I glanced out of the ad, it featured a birthday card which read, Happy 100th birthday, followed by some interesting words that said, Love, Mom and Dad. Um, <laughs> just give it a minute. Uh, so looking closer, I discovered it was a pharmaceutical ad with a promise to improve our quality of life in the near future. We'll be living longer, better lives. If we could eliminate war and bring world peace, would we have a better life? If we could disarm nations, could we save our future? If every people and tribe would harmonize their face, would there be less hostility in the world? The cross of Jesus is a sword that divides, and as long as there is sin in the world, the cross will divide believer and unbeliever. The world's message today is about acceptance, and if you do not show acceptance, you're a hater. But the cross still divides between right and wrong. There's no blurred lines. It's still black and white. I don't find any gray. It is an offense to many. But to those called by God to salvation, the cross means everything. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans means everything. Means everything. I'll end with this. It says, uh, down in slide 17, Merrily, he says, uh, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you in. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. What the cross does right before our eyes is overthrow the false standards of our world. The so-called best, brightest, beautiful, and brave have no more status before the cross than anyone else. We're all on equal ground. It cuts our standards of greatness to pieces. It destroys social classes. It rips the metals off of our chest. And we're all found on equal ground at the cross. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.